You know, some people received Jesus gladly, and other people could not stand him. Isn't that a funny reaction? The difference is that those who received Jesus were open to hearing something they might not want to hear. Something even difficult to accept about themselves. And that is, they're humble. They're open. Those who rejected Jesus were absolutely close-minded. They weren't considering anything other than what they accepted and thought they knew. They're arrogant. Now, this situation about receiving Jesus because of humility, rejecting Jesus because of arrogance, this holds in every situation without exception. And it divides the world into those who are humble and those who are arrogant. Those who are being saved and those who are being condemned for rejecting Jesus. And if you can't believe in Jesus, it's because you're arrogant. So we're reading in Luke chapter 5 from verse 27. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a number of, a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So here we have the calling of one of Jesus' disciples. Here he's named Levi. And in the other Gospels, we know he was Matthew. Two names. And imagine Levi, a tax collector, hearing Jesus command him. Just walks up to him and says, follow me. And Levi leaves everything. His job. His money. And he follows Jesus just like that. We think, really? But almost certainly, Levi has heard Jesus. He saw Jesus. He may have even seen miracles. And no man ever spoke like Jesus. Levi already knew this guy is somebody. And you know, 
I think Levi figured out that money isn't everything. Does anybody ever watch The Chosen? Ever seen the... Uh, it's an interesting television show. And they have an interesting sort of take on this whole call of Levi, Matthew. And, you know, one of the things they bring up is how Matthew burned all his bridges to be a tax collector. Everybody hates him. Even his own family. They, they have completely disowned him. They don't want to talk to him. He's on the outs with everybody. And I wonder if that couldn't be pretty awful after a while to be the loneliest guy in town and the only guy that'll hang with you are other guys just like you. You have sold out your own people. You're making a lot of money. Everybody is jealous of you and they also hate your guts. You have no friends. And Levi could have come to the point where he says, I'm going nowhere. My life is nothing. And here's Jesus. He was really something. And then Jesus comes up to Levi and says, follow me. It's a command. And Levi's thinking, he looks at me. He knows my name. This is my chance. What if I say to him, uh, I'll think about it. Do you think he'll give me a second chance? Or is my time right now to change my life and to take this opportunity? Do you think Jesus will ever drop by again and say, hey, you know, that offer I made you, what, a month ago? Or you want to follow me and stuff? Does Jesus have to take him on? Is Jesus sitting around waiting? Maybe, hi, you want to you wanna follow me a little? Huh? It's like saying, now or never. And Matthew just, Levi Matthew, I'm going to go back and forth all day here. He drops everything. And this simple command of Jesus is worth everything in his life. This is my whole future, where my life is headed. And he jumps at the chance. So long, tax collecting business, I'm done. And then Levi finds out his life has greater significance because he obeyed Jesus. So in verse 29 there, he's giving Jesus a big feast in his house, a reception. And he invites all the guys who are still in the business. And they come 
because they're really curious. Because when you become a tax collector and you work for the occupying Roman government and everybody hates you because what you're doing is you're not only collecting the taxes, but you're in a position of extreme power. You can extort money out of people. You have the power to do it. You have the power to legally pick everyone's pocket. And there's nothing they can do because you have the entire Roman government behind you. You can destroy anybody. And so it's all about money. And I'm going to take what I want and you can't stop me. See, that's why everybody hates you. Right there? You don't like them. You don't even have to know this guy, but you don't like him. So, all the other tax collectors and their girlfriends are hearing about Matthew, and they're going, what is the deal? What happened to him? And so they get this invitation, and they go, yeah. I mean, let's find out what the deal is. Hey, can I bring my girlfriend? I go, yeah, you can bring her. And the girlfriend says, well, can I bring all my girlfriends? She goes, yeah, bring them. So everybody in the business and all the other women who are in the business are, are crowding. They're having a party. They're going to listen to Jesus. And you know, it wasn't Levi's idea to throw the party, either. It was Jesus' idea. And so Jesus says, I want you to invite all your friends. And if they want to bring their girlfriends, hey, that's super cool. Anybody can come to this thing. Let's do it. So, Levi, you don't have a problem with this, do you? No. And I don't have a problem with it either. There's only one group of people that would have a problem with this. And they are the Pharisees. So, this is really interesting. These people, these Pharisees, that's the name of a a group within Judaism. They are conservative. They are biblically based. Their interpretation of the scriptures has been dominant for the last hundred years. Even the guys that don't like them have to go by what they say because they know they're right. So they're very conservative, very biblically based, and they have authority. Now, do you notice in verse 30 that the Pharisees are complaining against Jesus' disciples? And the reason for that is they're not in the room talking to Jesus. Now, the last time they were with Jesus, they were in some room in Capernaum in some house. And you remember the four guys want to bring their sick friend in and they can't get in. So they go through the roof and they lower their friend through a hole in the roof right in front of Jesus with all these Pharisees in the room. But this time, the Pharisees are not in the room. 
They're outside looking in, and they're not able to talk to Jesus because they would have to go into the room. And if they went into the room, that would compromise their holiness to be in the same room with wicked sinners. And they're not going to do that. They're going to, nope, I have nothing to do with these guys. And they can't ask Jesus directly. So they ask his disciples, what is he doing in there? Why is he having fellowship and eating and drinking with these traitors, these sinners, these wicked people? This is a total contradiction for somebody claiming to be the Messiah. Does he care nothing for holiness? And Jesus eventually hears about this, and he comes out and talks to them. He says, those guys in there are sick. I want to make them healthy. And I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners. And there's two things in that statement. One, I am not going to become like them. They're not going to make me sick. They're not going to defile me. I'm going to make them well. I'm going to make them holy like me. I'm not going to change. They're going to change. And see, he does care about holiness. But then he says, I didn't come for the righteous. And they have to chew on that because he doesn't really explain it. He didn't come for the righteous? He came for sinners? They're saying, what? You didn't come for us? You're coming for them? And indirectly, Jesus is sort of wanting to get them to think. He didn't come for the righteous. Now, you know, in the scriptures, it says there is none who are righteous. And you wonder how the Pharisees read that. There is none who is righteous. Well, except us. No, not one. There is no one who does good. Except us. And so, to have Jesus say, I didn't come for the righteous. Well, that's us. I came for the sinners. What? Oh, yeah, I came for them. So, do they want to accept this? And say, yeah, this guy, whoever he is, came for us. They don't want to accept that. They don't believe him. So look at the next verse here in verse 33. Then they said to him, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And he said to them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. 
No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one, otherwise the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new doesn't match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. So the Pharisees notice that there are set times of the year when according to Orthodox Judaism, you fast, you pray, you mourn. This is part of who we are, what we do, and we're doing those things. Even John the Baptist and his disciples are doing these things. But you guys, you're doing your own thing. You guys are having a party. You're whooping it up. So why are you doing your own thing out of sync with everybody else? And again, in a very indirect way, Jesus is trying to get these guys to think. And he says, this is a momentous time. God is doing something new, and he is the most important person there. Because he uses this idea of a wedding. And a wedding is a momentous, special occasion. It's way out of the routine. It's not just another day. It breaks up the routine. When you go to a wedding, it's basically an all-day thing, right? So it stops the daily reality as we know it. And the purpose of it is to do something new that's never been before. Two people are going to join their lives before God to make a new entity, a new one flesh. This is a life changer. You can draw a line in your life before marriage, after marriage. And it is a profound change, isn't it? So this is a momentous time when something new happens and there's a most important person at this most momentous time. Now, in our culture, it's a little bit different because it's the bride, right? This is her special day, and she dresses in a fabulous gown which she will never wear again, ever. Because you don't wear this thing to go shopping for groceries, do you? Or show up at work. You know, you're going to be at McDonald's in your wedding dress. I don't think so. Nowhere. One time in your life, and there you are. And you even have your own theme song. And when you walk in the room, the last of the procession, everybody stands. Everybody starts taking videos. Where's the bridegroom? Well, he's standing up in front like a numpty, and nobody's looking at him. It's like he's an add-on for the day. 
But here she comes, glowing, the most important person at this most momentous time. But see, in Jesus' time, it is most certainly patriarchal. And the most important person at this time that stops routine and a new thing is going to happen is not the bride. It is the bridegroom. He is the most important person. And it's reasonable that the focus is all on him. And he's saying, I am that guy. So he throws a little something in, verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Now you think, wait a minute, he's saying he's the Messiah and he's going to be taken away? Well, what's that? The Messiah is supposed to stay forever. And he's trying to get them to think. You mean the Messiah is not going to be here forever? And you know, indirectly, he's saying, no. I'm going to be killed for the sins of the world. I'm going to be buried. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. And I will ascend into heaven. And I will be the most high and then I will return to end the age. Now, he doesn't say all that, but that's what he means. This is momentous. Now, what Jesus goes on to say is, you don't mix the new and the old. You don't slam it all together when you do something new. Okay? You get rid of the old. And he uses this example of new clothing and old clothing. You don't take your favorite stained, crispy, kind of decrepit t-shirt and say, oh, it's got a rip in it. I know what I'll do. I'll take my brand new Marks and Spencer polo shirt and I'll go... And I'll sew it onto my crusty, stained, oh, the armpits are brown. And I'll save my old t-shirt. That's the right thing to do. All of those Pharisees are saying, no, it's not. Wear the new polo shirt. Throw the crusty t-shirt away. Or use it to polish your car tires. Or do something disgusting with it. But don't try to save it. It's old. Don't you know anything? Well, Jesus is kind of feeding it right back to him. Everybody knows this, right? And he goes on and takes an example of new wine. You don't take an old wineskin and put new wine in it. Because the old wineskin, and by the way, no bottles. 
There are no bottles for wine. You put it in a wineskin. You take goat skin, sew it up, make it watertight. Then you put your wine in there and let it ferment. See, in, in the fermenting process, develops carbon dioxide, and it makes everything nice and tight because it swells. But new wineskin has a little bit of stretch in it. It can handle that. But an old wineskin is brittle. It doesn't have the ability to stretch. It's lost that over time. And so if you put new wine into that, it's going to go and you're going to lose everything. Now I've experienced this because my mom used to make root beer at home. Root beer is an abominable American drink. And you make it with yeast. And she would use these huge 10-gallon glass jars or glass bottles. They're big, honking things. And of course, we thought, yeah, root beer. Well, she learned that you stick them in a plastic bucket wrapped up in a towel. Because one time, maybe she was a little heavy on the yeast. Who knows? But she blew up her glass bottles. It sent glass everywhere. Lost that batch. Same thing will happen to your goat skin if it can't stretch. Now, see, everybody would know this. The Pharisees know this. Duh. So, if you got a momentous occasion where there's something new and Jesus is the most important person, he's the one you focus at, he's telling them, this is that time I am that person. But then look at verse 39. No one having drunk old wine immediately desires new. For he says the old is better. And he's telling the Pharisees, I already know. You guys don't want me. You like it the old way. You don't want this to be about me because you guys are already the authorities. You're the ones who say that and that happens. This is what that means. And you're right. But here I come. I'm the most important person at the party. And you guys don't want that because you like the old way of doing things. You're pretty intoxicated with who you are and everybody's looking to you and you don't want anybody coming in to mess that up. You don't want the Messiah to be more important than you. Now, going into chapter 6, Jesus asserts his authority as the Son of Man. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read this? What David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some 
to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he said to them, the son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And the issue here is the Sabbath. This is the sign that God gave his people Israel to sanctify them, to show that they are his people. One day in seven, you do no work at all. This is a day devoted to the Lord to be holy to him. You do no work. And the question is, what is work? Because what these teachers of the law did is they wanted to make sure that nobody broke the law of God. And what they did was to, in effect, put a hedge of ordinances around that law so that nobody ever got close to breaking the law. As long as you kept the ordinances, you were miles away. So they say to themselves, what is work? And they, they really spend a lot of time thinking about what is work. How much could you carry in the Sabbath and not break the law? How far could you walk on a Sabbath and not break the law? So they made up a host of regulations around the law, and these came to be accepted as authoritative as the law of God. Now, this is a problem. The tradition has solidified, kind of like an old wineskin. And it has become a law in itself. Now, the disciples did not break the law of Moses by going through the grain field and you take a little bit of that grain head and you rub it, and basically you're, you're getting rid of the chaff. But see, the Pharisees called that threshing. That's work. You blow it, and you blow your chaff away so you don't have any chaff to eat, and then you just chew it, and they call that wheat gum. And you can chew it and eat it, and if you're hungry, it's kind of good. And you know, the law of Moses said you could fill up on that if you wanted to, if you're that desperate. 
as soon as you put it into a container, that's breaking the law of Moses. That's harvesting. You could walk through a, a, a vineyard and you could eat a grape, no problem. You could fill up, no problem. But as soon as you put a grape into your can, you're harvesting and you're breaking the law of Moses. So the disciples were not breaking the law. They're hungry. And see, the law commands mercy. Let them go through your grain field. Let them go through your vineyard. Feed them. But as soon as you start putting it in a can to take it away for later, you're harvesting, you're stealing. Everybody get that? Well, the Pharisees have defined work with authority, and Jesus is defying that authority. And again, Jesus is reasoning from the scriptures. He's getting them to think. He says, haven't you read this? And they're thinking, of course we've read it. We've read it. We understand it. We know what it says. Haven't you read this, though? Here's David. He's the Messiah of God. He was anointed. And he's in need. And he goes to the house of God and says, I gotta, I'm, I'm on a, a fast mission, unplanned. i got to have some food. What do you got? And the priest says, there's nothing here but the showbread. I've got some used showbread. Is that okay? And David says, yeah. So a priest gives David the holy bread of God that is not lawful for any but a priest to eat. And Jesus says, you guys read this, right? What kind of a statement is that to say to a teacher of the law who knows the Torah by heart? And he says, you know, I'm the son of man, who's a character that only shows up in Daniel chapter 7, who is presented as an equal to God, the ancient of days. He says, I'm greater than David, and I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and anything I say goes because I am equal with God. Do they believe him? So Jesus demonstrates again that he's the son of man in the synagogue. And he's teaching, and that's okay because it's the Sabbath. And the priests profane the Sabbath and are blameless. I don't like to quote that scripture. This is my main work day, right? But I'm blameless because I'm supposed to. So it's okay for Jesus to teach, but they're keeping their guys, their, their eyes on the guy with the withered hand because they're going, oh my gosh, look at him. Is Jesus going to heal him? cannot believe he's going to do that. Would he dare? We're watching. Would he dare? And Jesus knows their thoughts because he really is the son of man. He says, you, come on over here. 
He says, now, is it lawful for me to heal him on the Sabbath and do good? Or should I ignore him while I have a chance to do him good and let his life be destroyed on the Sabbath? You tell me what's better. Shall I bless him on the Sabbath or curse him? Shall I save his life or destroy him? What do you say? And the other Gospels point out and emphasize they said nothing. They won't even respond to him. And Jesus defies their authority. He says, stretch out your hand. And the guy goes, well, you know, if I could do this, <laughs> I wouldn't be here. But he says, okay, he obeys Jesus. And there is his hand back. Now, who can do this? Who can say, stretch forth your hand? Only the Son of Man who is from God. And yet these guys are livid. And they go out and start planning on the Sabbath how they're going to kill Jesus. Isn't that ironic? Because in their opinion, he is defying their authority in working on the Sabbath. And they're working to kill him on the Sabbath. So, at this most momentous time, Here's the most important person ever. And these Pharisees don't believe Jesus. They're not open to him. They're narrow-minded. They're used to being the authority. And they're not thinking. And it all boils down to this. They're arrogant. And they're not humble. And these things were written for a warning. Beware if you think you know it all. Beware of thinking you're important. Beware of wanting your own way. It should not be a surprise to any believer in Jesus to find out you're wrong. And to defend yourself because you don't think you're wrong. Happens all the time in disputes. And somebody comes in with something you don't want to hear. Some kind of aspect you've not thought about before. And what happens is you defend yourself. You say, nope, it's not true. I know what I'm doing. I'm right. You're wrong. But you know, you're a believer in Jesus. You've already said one time in your life, Jesus is right and I'm wrong. And it should never be a surprise to find out once again you're wrong. Because you have a lot to learn, I have a lot to learn, and nobody's arrived yet. Now, if we defend ourselves and there's no possibility in our minds that we're wrong, that is really the wisdom from below. 
We don't want to manifest that. The wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, willing to yield, reasonable. That's the mind of Christ. So, here's Levi, an interesting guy who just jumps when Jesus says, follow me. And almost immediately, his life becomes significant because he's doing what Jesus told him to do. It wasn't his idea. It's what Jesus is saying. And what he did as a disciple was to continue to obey Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower, to obey Jesus. So when Jesus says, yeah, let's throw a party. Really? Let's have it at your house. Huh? Invite all your friends. Really? He does what Jesus says, and all of his friends and associates hear the gospel. And see, that's what's going to happen when we say, okay, Lord, anything you want, you bought me with your own blood, now I'm going to listen for your voice, and I'm going to obey you and do what you want. Because he's still the most important person, and not you. Are you listening for Jesus? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord that you are the most important person. And I can think of so many times in my life when I heard things about myself and it was unpleasant to hear them because I thought I was a better person than that. And it turned out to be true. And I found out how merciful you are to forgive sinners. And I keep finding that out. Thank you that you save to the uttermost. That you wash and cleanse and restore in order to make a humble person. A blessed person. Thank you that you keep working in our lives to humble us. Please keep commanding and giving us your plan and what you want us to do, what you want me to do. Be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.